My name is Craig Pickett. I'm an executive recruiter. More than a decade ago, I started my practice for one purpose, to use my experience as a former military aviator, business jet sales executive, and P&L leader to help aviation and aerospace companies and their executives be fast, adaptable, and strategic. I do these podcasts to inspire and inform, but more importantly, they are a focused platform to help business leaders grow. Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. Hey, welcome back to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. Um, I am uh, I'm really thrilled to have uh, Neil Sahota with me today. Uh, Neil is one of the uh, the world's premier experts on artificial intelligence. He is the author of the book, Own the AI Revolution. Um, his career has taken him through uh, some of the world's premier tech companies, and he's also on the board of directors for several uh, tech startups. Um, he lectures at the uh, University of California at Irvine, and he is also uh, an advisor to the uh, United Nations under the program AI for Good. So, uh, hey, thanks for coming on, Neil. Hey, delighted to be here. Thanks for having me, Craig. So let's go to you. Let's start off with your book. What is the AI revolution? We're hearing a we're hearing a lot about AI. Quite frankly, I don't know whether to embrace it or, you know, be scared to be scared to death of it. So uh, let's start there. Well, you're not alone, Craig. That's the big question everyone has: Is this a good thing or a bad thing? And to, to be honest, I think it's really on us as people to, to figure out because AI, like any technology, is a tool and it's all about how we use it. And, you know, that's the reason I actually wrote the book is everyone knows the changes are coming and everyone's worried about what this means, right? Am I going to lose my job or the robot's going to take over? And you hear a lot of fear mongering. I'm not saying there's not legitimate concerns, but I think there's actually a unique opportunity for people to kind of shape that future and say, this is actually what we could do with AI. And it's not just the smart technologists that are going to tell us, it's really the domain experts. How many technologists you know understand medicine or law or even aerospace? So it's really the, 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 the business leaders that understand the problems that are going to bring the great ideas to bring great use for the technology. And that's really the revolution that's going to happen is, you know, taking that next step together and creating some cool products and services. So we're, we're seeing AI, you know, now and, and you, know, you know, a lot of machine learning. I mean, you know, I take it right now, we're at the, you know, really the infant stages of AI. It's probably, you know, you know, the, you know, it's, it's, it's like the first, first batter in the first inning of the ball game. Um, but it's already doing a lot of really neat functions. You know, a lot of machine learning out there right now. Um, you know, a lot of people using it for both, both good and bad. How do you see this uh, revolution progressing, you know, from where we are now um, into the near and distant future? I, I think that a lot of the, I'll call it kind of low level admin type of tasks are getting automated. And we're already starting to see that, that the machine can do some more of the repetitious, it requires a little bit of cognition, like processing an insurance claim. But those types of works, I think is what a lot of people are focused, what I call the automation. I think really what's gonna happen is more people learn the capabilities and we're starting to see some of this, it'll transform more to innovation. 
So you, you think of something like manufacturing, like manufacturing an airplane. There's already companies starting to take AI and combine that with generative design and say, look, here's, you teach the machine, here's how you make a plane. It's, you know, it's got to have enough, it's got to have engines that can produce enough thrust to, thrust to escape gravity. It's got to have, you know, wings and flaps and all these things. But rather than say, you know, these are the materials that we can use or these things, just like, this is the principles of what an airplane needs to have to fly. I want a plane that's going to hold 200 people, have a range of 12,000 miles, you know, just give the, the parameters constraints and let the machine figure out a design for it. And through general design, it's designing millions of potential options with, as we've actually seen in fabrications, using things like combinations of metals or plastics that we've actually never seen before. We, we even through all that, discarding the ones that doesn't think makes the most sense and presenting anywhere from four to 12 options for human engineers to actually start looking at reviewing and say, wait a second, maybe one of these actually makes a whole lot of sense. You know, but along those same lines, you know, you think about, you know, back when I was a kid and the very, you know, you know, computers took up a whole room and you know, they, they talked about, you know, garbage in, garbage out, you know, all the basic parameters of computing and software and coding and things like that, you know, where do you get your baseline? So if I'm a company and I'm thinking about, you know, hey, look, I, I you know, I want to offload this to some sort of artificial intelligence function, be it credit cards, you know, credit card companies or banks using it for fraud protection or, or you know, aerospace manufacturers. How does, you know, how do they set up the baseline? for what AI will, you know, compute and calculate off of? What's the starting point? So that's a great question. It's data. It's actually all about data. And that's ironically one of the big challenges to using AI. To teach a machine, you have to give it tons and tons of data. That's the fuel. And if you don't have the data or you can't acquire it or you can't get it or license it, you're stuck, you can't do it, right? I, I very much liken this to teaching a child. If you want, uh, you want to raise a kid that can do fraud detection, build an airplane, help you know, doctors diagnose uh, a patient in the ER, you have to teach it all these different concepts. So you have to be able to give it data and it looks for patterns of the data and that's how it learns. We're not programming the algorithms, the machine is actually figuring it out itself. So without that data, you're stuck, you can't do it. Which then puts a lot of emphasis, not just on having data, but good data. Because if the data is biased, for example, you're gonna teach the machine the wrong things. One of the big things in my work with the United Nations is that they're really interested in AI robot judges. They figure that if you have this, it'll reduce corruption, improve access to justice. But you look at, you know, there's tons of data there, but if you gave that to a machine, like the U.S. court system, what might the machine learn? Is there some implicit bias in our court rulings where it might say, oh, wait a second, uh, it seems like people of different ethnicities or nationalities get treated differently, get different types of sentences. We learn those implicit, you know, I'll call, you know, biases or even racism and apply that. Because once the machine learns something, it can't really unlearn that. Right. 
Right. I mean, we see, you know, you, you know, look, you're AI for good. And we talk about, you know, we see in China right now where, you know, the reports are, you know, China is using AI for, you know, repression and population control. I'll use that. You know, it's being reported in the news and I'll use that. Um, I take it other governments would, you know, you, you know, they want to, you know, install AI to promote, you know, the, you know, the, the direction the governments want to go versus, you know, what's good for the people. How do you, what needs to happen globally for AI to really work as a benefit to people or to keep it from being a, you know, a, a nightmarish scenario? Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll kind of pull that old cliche out and say that for this to, to be a benefit, it means that good people can do, can't do, or can't just do nothing, right? I, I, we all have to kind of stand up and say, we have a voice in this and we have a choice in how to use this. And that's why I'm a big proponent that, you know, we need to have some regulation around AI technology. I know there's the, the big battle between regulation, too much kills innovation and not enough can cause harm to society and it's a balance. But with, without it, without a general consensus, um, well, what does right use really mean? Like in, in China, they now have the Smiles program where they, everyone has a social credit score and they're using machine learning and AI technology to try and observe good behavior, bad behavior, and either points go up or points go down based on good, bad behavior. And if your points get below, you're no longer allowed to access certain services. So you like you can't ride trains, planes, you know, you can't get right. other types of social services. And in, in China, you know, a lot of people say this is actually a good thing and incentivizing people to behave better. But I know that we, we look at here in the US or in Europe, they're like, whoa. It's a little too big brotherish, right? Right, right. Yeah. Hey, look, it's a different society. Yeah, different societies embrace different concepts. I mean, you think about Google. You know, Google's mantra when it first came into being was "Don't be evil." Mm -hmm. um, it's you know, it's a hugely innovative company, but on the flip side too, there's a lot of critics out there saying, "Hey, it's going a little, it's going a little too far." Um, you know, it all. I guess it all depends on how you look at it, right? It does, but I think that's the challenge that we all have because, you know, technology has no boundaries, right? What gets created in China, what really stops that from coming to other countries and vice versa. And I, you know, spoke at a couple of years ago at a big global regulators conference, actually making this point and saying that if we want to really define and try and encourage people to use the technology for good, we have find, obviously find ways to incentivize them or give them the stick that's for bad, but what does good or bad or even right use mean? And that really means that we have to come to some sort of consensus or baseline on what like proper use or ethical use is. Right. Think, think about that. Forget about even countries. Think about people. We all have different senses of what's moral and ethical. And I will tell you that People were not happy that I was willing to say it was in the back of everyone's minds. I, I even remember the director general running up to me afterwards saying, like, that was a very brave thing you did, Neil, but you probably should get out of here. You haven't made any friends. Because it's it's a hard thing to do, and it's it's 
hard conversation that takes time, but the next year at that, you know, the next year's global regulators conference, guess what was happening? People were having this, all these hallway conversations with each other on exactly this, what, what exactly is ethical behavior? Can we come to that kind of baseline consensus? So as a global society, we're all driving towards that one goal. Yep. Yeah. Where are you seeing it? Look, all right. So let's, let, let's switch the gears right now. I mean, we could talk about, you know, like you said, yeah, there's, there's no boundaries to technology. Um, you know, the information Facebook and, and Google and everybody else has on us now, you know, 30 years ago, you know, it, it never, you know, nobody could ever envision, you know, this type of, you know, data collection and, and, and so far, Hey, look, it's, it's, you know, yes, it has its critics, but it's working. You know, it seems to be, you know, you know, working and conversations are happening around it. But where are you seeing AI right now? Where are you seeing the biggest promise as a, as an expert in the field? You know, where are you seeing the biggest promise? Well, that's a great question, Craig. Uh, it depends on kind of the, the industry. Um, we're, we're seeing that, you know, AI might be really interesting in education um, as an accelerator, as a, you know, as a tutor, but to actually kind of give people that 27, 24 by seven kind of educational coach, if you will. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've done, and I've been very big about is like give back and trying to help underserved communities because technology, unfortunately, is also a driver for income inequality. Sure. And so trying to, you know, get students underserved communities to get active more in STEM or STEAM initiatives is big. And one of the things, you know, especially in my IBM days, even doing like a once a month project with these students, they get really excited. You know, even the fourth graders get really excited. You know, they want to learn. And then it's like they have no outlet to go learn anymore, right? Once we're gone, we're gone. And it's not necessarily the teacher you know, knows the subject or is teaching on that subject. And they may not have the resources at home or the parents that they can try and do something with. And so there's been a really big push in education to try and give that supplemental help or guidance to the students so that if they're really interested in something, they can keep pursuing that topic. And that's mm -hmm. also now started morphing into, well, you know, every student learns differently. You know, in healthcare, we always talk about precision medicine, you know, do a practicing medicine based on the specific individual. Could we do the same thing in education? Could we actually teach in a way that's the most conducive to each particular student? Like if this student's a visual learner, this one's a more of an auditory learner, you know, this person kind of has to, to write things out. If you tell these types of stories, this student's gonna resonate more, whereas this person needs to maybe see videos or something. And so there's been a big push in that space. A lot of companies like Rare Innovations are now creating AI tools for all school children, but also parents, school administrators, and teachers to try and create precision education. You know, it's amazing to me. I've got, you know, my twins are in college, and it's amazing to me how different each of them learn. My, my son is a huge consumer of YouTube videos. He, uh, he takes a chemistry class at, you know, University of North Carolina, and you know, he'll spend the next three hours on on YouTube watching different 
chemistry classes, you know, and videos, et cetera, on how to, you know, how to do stuff. And it's fascinating to me how far along we've come into that regard. So when you talk about teaching each student, you know, just, you know, creating, you know, individually defined curriculum based on a set of parameters that is learned from somebody starting at age, maybe seven or eight when they're in elementary school, all the way up to the time they're in college and beyond. Yeah, and that's exactly the right way to put it, a individualized curriculum. So it's, it's learning methods as well as what their interests and their strengths and weaknesses might lie. You know, we, we still teach very much in a lot of places using 19th century techniques. And, you know, we're always taught you have to kind of teach to the lowest common denominator in the class so nobody feels like it's, it's too hard or getting left behind. And, we, you know, unfortunately, that means the students that might be stronger in a subject feel more bored or alienated. And so there's, there's never been like a perfect, you know, kind of, I'll call it balance for all the students. But now we actually have the tools to actually enable that. Let's take it a different direction. You know, recently in the news, let's go back to, to aerospace a little bit and aviation. Obviously, Boeing has been a big headline in the news the last year with the uh, the two max crashes um how are aircraft designers and manufacturers and you know, airlines etc going to use ai are they going to enhance the man versus machine interface totally replace it change it what uh how do you see this? How do you see this all progressing? And let's just take it in 10, 20, 30 year, you know, 10, 20, 30 year steps. All right. Well, it's an interesting question because we're already seeing a little bit of this and they're trying to, the, the airlines are actually trying to use AI to optimize revenue. Mm -hmm. So at least in the short term, they're trying to figure out and they're using something called psychographic profiling where an AI can kind of figure out your personality traits and see how open you are to an upsell, like an upgrade or, you know, something else. And what's the right language to use to up your conversion rate. Um, they're looking at other things around the passenger experience, which is probably a dig on a greater need if, you know, if they, as they expect, travel will reduce, especially business travel. Um, but one of the one of the big things they're all looking at is um, simulation. So I know that Bo Boeing and Airbus are looking at like machine learning to actually do better simulations of variable conditions when they actually design a plane. So before they even build something, they can put it through more rigorous testing, if you will. Uh, in an AI environment, because the AI could actually simulate millions of different potential scenarios in a very short time and provide readings on how that's going to impact the, the fuselage, the engines, and so forth. But also to try and do some of this, the airlines are looking for this to for training, where they want to marry virtual reality and AI together and create unique scenarios. So it's not like you just pop into a module, it's the same module every time. Now different things can pop up, and so it will actually help better test pilot reaction time. But you can also then marry that with other biometric indicators like heartbeat, 
breathing and other things to see how they handle stress. Mm -hmm. So that's stuff that's kind of like, I call it 10 to 15 years out or maybe zero to 15 because some, of that, some of that's actually already here. The, the other big thing, especially in the airline industry, is they're looking at how they're going to reinvent themselves. And so are you really just a transportation company getting people from point A to point B or cargo from point A to point B, or is there something more? And all the Pond Airways is starting to realize that, especially with VR, would people travel as much? Would they really go on vacation? So they're actually trying to reorient themselves as a destination company, like a kind of a, you know, vacation experience type organization. And so they've invested heavily, not just in VR, but also in AI. So that it's not just, you just, again, buy a module and you do what everybody else does. You can have interactive, you know, computer personas inside your vacation that and the vacation can be tuned to your own personal needs and interests so that everyone gets their own unique vacation experience, fully interactive, fully immersive. And so that, that's an interesting thing because you're saying like, well, does that mean we'll abandon, you know, I'll call it planes altogether. And they're actually, their hope is no, that if you get a good enough experience, you might actually want to really go to that place. Well, the, you know, not only that, you know, we, I, was, I was talking with somebody not too long ago, but you, you, know, you were just talking about the airlines using AI to you know, figure out my profile. You know, if you figure out my profile, I travel for business, I am a little bit, you know, I'm just a conservative guy. So my, my, my personal, the, the, the seat I always choose on American is, you know, row, you know, I'll just say it. Yeah, it's 27C. I just don't, you know, look, I, you know, I'm a more, you know, uh, you know, I'll just go into the back of the airplane, row 27C. People aren't bumping into me. I'm one of the first people on the plane. But then, you know, hey, look, I, you know, I want to get on to go-go. And, you know, you know, I'd like my phone to automatically connect me to, to go-go or Viasat or whatever the, you know, the, uh, you know, the in-flight communication system is, you know, when I get off the airplane in LA or San Diego, you know, I don't want to be dialing up an Uber. I just want that already done for me. And I get out of the air, you know, I, I walk out of the airport and, you know, I get a text from the minute I walk out of the airport, I get a text from the Uber driver that says I'm in whatever, you know, whatever vehicle. Do you, do you see all this tying in together via, and you know, the, the minute you make an airline reservation? And are the airlines going? Are the airlines embracing this concept? Uh, they they sort of are. I'll say it's kind of a yes and a no. They are kind of thinking the point. I should say end to end experience, travel experience. And I know some of the airlines, like United, even has a Uber feature on their app, right? But I think it's also based on partnerships because some of the old business models are going to have to change, right? Because the airlines. They're still trying to sell you like, hey, we can help you book a hotel. We can help you book a rental car, right? And they get obviously a cut of that. And so until they're willing to kind of let go of that or negotiate a similar type of deal with Uber or something like that, I, I don't know if we'll see that true end-to-end -end yet. But I think that's, that's something that will probably change in the very near future.
Or does that process leave the airlines and go to somebody like Travelocity, you know, one of Barry Diller's companies, who's very much, you know, more, you know, seem to be more tech inclined, you know, you know now. Um, it, it, it could, but I think we've seen the airlines push back against that, right? Because the way they're now allocating like award miles, other things, incentivizes you to book directly. Right. Right. And so I think at some point, something, there's going to be some give and take here that's going to have to happen to make this model work because it can't just be, I'm going to protect what I got. And I don't think the airlines want to be in the you no know, car rental or hotel business again. Right. Yeah. No, 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 no doubt. I mean, it's all going to be a matter of, like you said, it's going to be all a matter of connected partnerships and, you know, understanding, you know, who your partner is and how they're, you know, how you're sharing revenue and how you're, you know, working together and what the benefit is to everybody. And I think a lot of that is, you know, just building trust amongst different companies. For for sure. And, you know, I call it like the ecosystem model and then the whole world is kind of moving to the, this ecosystem. And I know it's a little unsettling that, you know, especially for the airlines where margins are tough already to say that I'm going to surrender some revenue for this. But again, you have to think about just what the future of the business is going to be and is the trade-off for volume and other things worth it. How much more efficient is, you know, you know, how much more efficient is AI going to get me? And the second thing is, is, you know, it can be, it's a pretty overwhelming concept. You know, you don't know, literally, you don't know what you don't know. There's probably a hundred things I could be doing with AI if I only knew what AI could really do for me. So, so how do you, how do you, yeah. How do you start to understand that, which, which you, that, which you don't understand? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, Craig. And you got to do a little bit of self-learning. And I, I know that, a lot of people freak out a bit because they're like, well, technology is difficult. And I don't think it's necessarily, you have to understand the guts of how AI actually works. You don't have to worry about neural networks or these other things. I think it's more about understanding the capabilities and limitations the technology actually brings. It's actually one of the reasons why I wrote the book or my book because, um, you know, I was hoping a lot of companies, but it's all one-off because they all have the same questions. Like, what exactly does AI do? How can I use it? How do I get started? And this is, this is not about, you know, ones and zeros. This is really about, you have a machine that can suddenly do things that we've never seen before, right? That it can do low-level cognitive type of tasks, could do what we teach it. How can you actually apply that? And I'll give you a non-aerospace example. Uh, I, I was brought forward to uh, one of the big mega law firms. And, you know, they were talking about these 12 use cases to use AI. And I told them like, look, look, you guys did a lot of great work. And yeah, you could absolutely use AI, but you're thinking very much just automation, right? You help you manage your calendars better, help you manage the case rules better, right? You're not really unlocking a whole lot of value from this. And I remember the managing one manager partner looks at me like, I'm glad you said that because that's how we felt. I mean, what's the big deal? And so I just said, hey, just, what, what keeps you awake at night? What's your biggest problem? And he told me it's talent management. He's like, we have no idea how good our people are or not. If they're going to be good trial lawyers, if they're going to be you know, good business development or rainmaker type of people. 
we've let people go that we thought were mediocre and it turns out they're superstars in court they're beating us every time right can AI do something there i'm like well actually yes right and so i explained to them how you know ai could actually help assess a person's knowledge skills other types of things to help identify a you know a better fit career track and what they're actually capable of doing like are they good communicators these other types of things and the first reaction was they didn't believe me like there's no way a machine can do that better than a person and i'm not saying that machines do everything better than people there's a lot of things people do better than machines but some of the things machines can do better than us is surprising and they actually built their ai engine to kind of help do the talent management and suddenly they found employee morale shot up, worker attrition came down, people felt more fulfilled, and they were actually shocked by that, right? Because it never dawned on them that kind of a talent management people type of problem could be solved by AI. And that's, that's the thing to try and unlock. And unfortunately, to be able to just fully understand how to leverage these capabilities, we have to be kind of different thinkers and think about beyond just doing something better, faster, less errors, but can we find a new way of doing it? That this is a machine enable a new capability to actually allow us to do something like that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that. You know, you, you think if you're a partner in a law firm or a CEO of a company and, you know, you know, look, you know, large companies have, have big resources. You could bring in a, you know, chief digital officer or something like that, you know, and bring in the, the, you know, the brains of the industry, you know, and, and say, pay them a lot of money and say, go, you know, let's, let's put three initiatives the company's experiencing down and how are we going to use either machine learning or new tech to tackle these programs? And it could be, Hey, look, I want to knock 10% out of manufacturing. I want to do, you know, I want to, you know, I want to, I want to you know, manage employee engagement and I want to get my supply chains more efficient. You know, they've got big resources to do that. You know, is there a burgeoning, uh, what I, you know, my question is, I'll make it, yeah, I guess I'm going the long way to a really short question is, is there a burgeoning industry now that talks, you know, to, for small companies? Like, hey, look, you know, we help small companies via, AI. And the second thing is, is you think about data collection in itself. Um, you know, data collection in itself is a huge, it can be a huge process. So are these industries that we're going to see, you know, uh, up and coming in the near future? For, for sure. And I think the, the small or startup community is actually probably a lot bigger than people realize. Um, you know, we, we talking about ecosystems a little bit earlier, you know, all these big companies, the Googles, the IBMs, the Facebooks, are trying to build their ecosystem and get you know, people to use their AI tools. And you know, when I was building the IBM Watson ecosystem, you know, one of the things that we really found was about 70% of the people using the Watson technology were actually startups. And what we learned working with all these different organizations is that while they have less resources, they actually come with the better ideas, right? They're way more willing to think differently about how to do something, to be disruptive than like your, your big type of companies because we they're like, we know how to do things, it's working, it's not broke, we want to, nothing to fix. So 
So they're thinking very much more automation, whereas the, you know, the entrepreneurs are thinking innovation. And as a result, there's a lot more programs, not just for big companies, but even government programs, universities, to encourage and give them resources, tools, labs, whatever they might need to pursue those ideas. So I think on that front, there's, there's help, and that amount of help is actually growing. So hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll see a lot, a lot more uh, great ideas popping out, but I think we'll also see a lot more disruption and change happening faster and faster as a result. What do you, you know, let's, um, you know, let's finish it up on this one. What are you teaching your kids when you're lecturing at UCAL, or, you know, University of California, Irvine is a phenomenal school. What are you teaching the kids there when you're lecturing? Um, um, you know, what's the primary focus? What are these, what are the, what are the, what's the, what do people really need to know um, about AI and what's coming at them? I, I actually really focus on giving them the ability to think critically, to think differently. So, you know, even though I'm, I'm teaching them skills around, you know, AI and analytics and entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, I want them to be able to actually do it in any kind of environment, they actually just don't know the concepts, but they can apply it in a dynamic situation, which means that you have to be able to, lack of a better word, think well. And I thrust them into a very real world environment for their, for their classes, you know, and I know it's not for all students, but a lot of students have told me that it's been a, not just a great experience, but after they graduated and gone on, they've actually said, I actually can do the job because I feel like it's like your class. And they even said, I brought some of my knowledge to my team, my department, my management. And uh, you know, like, they're really proud that their enterprises are actually adopting that. So I, I really emphasize thinking and not just concepts, but how to use the knowledge. So do, you know, do people need to be scared of it? Is it going to replace people? Or is it going to enhance people? No, I think it's going to enhance people. I will, I will, I will tell you two, two quick things. One, when the tractor came out, they thought it would be the end of farmers. No, it made farmers more efficient. Now, granted, we need less farmers, right? One farmer can do more work. But people have always been good about finding more complex, higher-value things to do. And I think that's what AI will actually do for us. I don't believe in a Terminator future where it's going to rise up humanity and conquer the world. I don't think we're all going to get automated of a job. I actually believe in very much the cyborg future, where we're going to combine the best capabilities of people with the enhancements that machines can bring to actually do even more amazing work. Because for, for not, nothing else, always remember, machines can't think on their own. They can't imagine. They can't create. They can only do what we teach them. Mm-hmm. And so that really does free up our time to pursue, you know, greater opportunities, you know, to think, I always like to think about like space exploration and, you know, the search for different types of life, like non-carbon life. That's not something an AI can conceive of. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for us. We just have to find our, find our way, find our passions and marry them together. Yeah. So it's always, you know, that's the way I kind of always looked at it. It's, you know, people always want to get better and they're always looking for a tool to get better. 
yep. to help them get better. They're never looking for a tool to replace them. For sure. Awesome. Hey, will you come back? I want to. I, I want to come back and take this uh, take this conversation to another level. Will you Will you come back on in a, in a few months? I would love to, Craig. That'd be awesome. What's uh, What's next in your world? You got the book out. Um, people can find it. I take it, you know, on Amazon and in the bookstores, the usual the usual places, or is there? Yeah. A sp- no, they absolutely can. It's at every uh, major bookstore, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the works you to find. So, own the AI revolution is the title. Neil Sahota, once again, is the author. How do uh, how do people find you, Neil? They can uh, come to my website, which is neilsahota.com, or you can always find and follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Awesome. I will uh, be sure to connect with you as well. So, hey, thank you very much for coming on. Great, uh, great conversation. Hey, my pleasure. This is fun, Craig. Thanks. Let's do it again. I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Aerospace Executive Podcast. You can reach out to me directly, Craig at NorthStarESG.com, or check us out at www.NorthStarESG.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube. Just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pippen.